from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And we know their names by their code names. Cynthia, David, Edna, Otto, confidential informants. And, and they would have been good friends of yours. You can see how a person could become paranoid. Uh, and at one point, he said, maybe the FBI wrote it. And I said to him, you are paranoid. You have gone off the deep end. I'm Sarah Fenske. This month, I had a rare treat. I interviewed filmmaker Nina gildon Seavey at the St. Louis International Film Festival. Nina is a professor at George Washington University and founder of the Documentary Center there. She was being given the Charles Guggenheim Cinema St. Louis Award for her contributions to the art of documentary film. Nina is also a St. Louis native, and her new project, a podcast called My Fugitive, is more personal than her acclaimed films on the polio epidemic and an aspiring bullfighter. It tells the story of her father, prominent civil rights attorney Louis Gilden, and his client Howard Mechanic, a Washington University anti-war activist who fled St. Louis and went on the lam. Mechanic eventually became the second longest fugitive in American history. The story Nina tells in her podcast is a story of St. Louis in the 1960s, but its telling was only made possible because of newly released records, ones Nina fought to get from the federal government. And it was only possible thanks to the passage of time. People opened up to Nina about things they'd never talked about before. They talked about Howard Mechanic. They talked about the confidential informants who'd infiltrated local activist groups. And they talked about all the energy the St. Louis field office of the FBI expended seeking to disrupt the new left, even while virtually ignoring a St. Louis-based conspiracy that likely played into the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., it's an extraordinary story, and hearing Nina discuss it on stage in a room filled with people who'd been active in the anti-war movement at Washington University was an extraordinary experience. Since we were on campus in the Brown Auditorium, Nina quipped that it was old home week. It felt like a reunion. It's an experience I'm honored to share with you today. I kicked off the conversation by asking Nina why she didn't make a film about these events. Why, I asked, did she make a podcast? So I obviously know how to make a film. It's what I do for a living. I could probably do it in my sleep. But when I sued the federal government, I found out things that I never could have anticipated. The one thing about a film is that it's a fairly linear form. In film, you like things to go from beginning to middle to end. It's actually pretty simple. Well, this project no longer became very simple. It became a story that became hard to encapsulate in a log line. So in podcasting, you have a lot more time and you can go into a lot more complexity. So 150,000 documents, 40 interviews, 10 years of my life, and it changed to this. So that's actually the perfect intro. Let's listen to the opening of the podcast, My Fugitive. It wasn't uncommon for our phone to ring in the middle of the night or for my family to live under police protection or for the bomb dogs to come at dawn and sniff underneath my father's car. I was assigned to hold Happy, our family terrier, so he didn't attack the police dogs while they did their job. My father was a civil rights attorney, one of the few in St. Louis, in all of Missouri, actually. In the 1960s and 70s, civil rights attorneys didn't get a lot of respect in the Midwest. They were considered troublemakers. It was a job for someone who was kind of a terrier himself, angry and unrelenting. That was my dad. He was very good at what he did. He had a lot of clients. So when our phone rang on the night of May 4th, 1970, I woke up, but I wasn't surprised. His clients called at all hours of the day and night, 
with all kinds of emergencies. I was 12 years old at the time, and I was used to it. We lived in a big house right near Washington University. There was an eight-foot fence around the garage in our backyard. And that night, I heard my father open it, back the car out, then close the fence and drive away down Maryland Avenue. I went back to sleep. It was so normal for us that I didn't even mention it the next day. Years later, though, I'd go back and begin to pull at the threads of that night, May 4th, 1970. Thousands of students rioted on the campus of WashU. They burned a federal building to the ground. Some of them were arrested, and one of them became my father's client, Howard Mechanic. He was a 22-year-old senior at the time, a long-haired campus activist with plans to go to law school. Instead, he was sentenced to five years in federal prison. Five years for protesting. But Howard didn't go to prison. He went on the run, and he stayed on the run for nearly 30 years. My father represented hundreds, maybe thousands of clients over the course of his career, from traffic court to the U.S. Supreme Court. But Howard Mechanic's disappearance haunted him for the rest of his life. For years, he'd ask, sometimes out of the blue, where did Howard go? Whatever became of him? Finally, I decided to find out. Of us three children, I was the one who inherited my father's preoccupation with Howard. I didn't become a lawyer, although I did think about it. Instead, I became a historian and a documentary filmmaker. My search for Howard Mechanic led me to places I never could have imagined. A Cold War spy ring, a conspiracy to murder a civil rights leader, and the U.S. government's attempts to cover it all up. I know. It sounds like the stuff of crazy tin hat conspiracy theories. Except it's not. I spent almost a decade fighting for the documents to prove it. I'm Nina gildan and this is My Fugitive. So, Nina, you start the documentary in, or the podcast, <laughs> in 1970. Podcast, yeah. And it soon becomes clear that you have to go back to 1968. Tell us what happened in 1968 that, that really sort of sets the stage for everything that happened two years later. In on December 3rd, 1968, a young man named Michael Siskind put a Molotov cocktail on the window on the windowsill of the Army ROTC building. Now, over at the far end of campus, there was an Army ROTC building and there was an Air Force ROTC building. He put this Molotov cocktail, he had a friend with him. A guard saw the two of them from some distance doing something that was probably illegal. The guard rushes down. By the time he arrives at the, um, at the Army ROTC building, the accomplice has fled. But he catches Michael Siskind in the act of, you know, having this Molotov cocktail in his hand. He arrests him. Michael Siskin refuses to give up the name of his accomplice. On December 4th, the very next day, the assistant U.S. attorney here in St. Louis had a conversation with the special agent in charge of the FBI about bringing federal charges against this young boy where no bomb had ever gone off Nothing ever happened, but they made the decision to put him up on federal charges of sabotage here in St. Louis. They contacted Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell, and the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. said, you know, we don't think we have enough evidence to get this conviction. So what did J. Edgar Hoover do? He said, let's find some. So they charge Michael Siskind in 1960. He uh, comes to trial in 1969, and he is sentenced by Judge Roy Harper to five years in federal penitentiary. It was the first time in American history that a student protester had been brought up on federal charges with evidence that had been gathered by the FBI in a case where nothing had occurred 
and Judge Roy Harper was very happy to make the conviction because they were going to stop what in St. Louis was called the anarchy of protest. So Michael Siskind went to prison. It made the Walter Cronkite evening news where he, Walter Cronkite says, Michael Siskind was you know, sentenced to five years in federal penitentiary today on the first case of sabotage ever against a student protester. So the plot was starting to thicken in 1968 and 69. And in those years, protests were also heating up across the U.S. So you talked to student activists about what those days were like. Let's listen to another clip from your podcast. At WashU and on campuses all over America, the protest grew even more urgent and intense. And one of the things that happened on campus was that there were demonstrations, but at night there would be kind of guerrilla activity of people out with whammo slingshots. And if you put a ball bearing in it, and you, you can do serious damage. That's a former member of the Students for a Democratic Society at WashU, the local chapter of the National Anti-War Group, SDS. All these years later, he's still anxious about us using his name in conjunction with the event he's about to describe. On February 23, 1970, he and some friends were sitting around an off-campus apartment. There were about a dozen or 15 of us talking about what we should do. And among other things, I said, we should do something dramatic. And in the course of an hour or so, we developed a plan. A plan to burn down a building. I mean, all of us had some concept of how you commit arson. And none of us were at all stupid. A number of things were thought about. One of the most important was, is there anybody in the building? We want to make sure there's nobody in the building. And the second thing is that we should get away with it. <laughs> they siphoned gas from a car into some empty bottles, grabbed some rags, and headed to campus around 11 p.m. Certain people went to the dormitory areas to set off fire alarms to distract things. They split up. One group took the Army ROTC building and the other, the Air Force. We literally were there for less than 10 minutes broke windows and threw in Molotov cocktails and got out of there. We didn't wait around to see if we were doing this well or not. The Air Force building didn't burn, but a photo of the gutted Army ROTC building dominated the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch the next day. The U.S. attorney convened two federal grand juries that spring to try to identify who was involved. My father represented the students who'd been subpoenaed, he told them all to take the fifth, don't say a word. And they didn't. The code of silence amongst the arsonists stuck. No one named names, which angered local law enforcement and the FBI. They'd failed to catch Michael Siskin's accomplice when they arrested him back in December of 68. And now, the building that had been his target was burned to the ground. And no one knew who did it. In fact, when the man you just heard told me this story... It was the first time anyone had ever admitted to the crime. But once again, the FBI had its suspicions. A memo from the St. Louis special agent in charge to J. Edgar Hoover names one man as the chief suspect in the burning of the Army ROTC building, Howard Mechanic. So that takes us to February of 1970. Howard Mechanic was on their radar. Howard Mechanic's on their radar. Not only do they think that he was involved in the burning of that Army ROTC building, but they believed that he was the accomplice to Michael Siskind. We have a, an, a confidential informant report that when the um, informant, and we're going to talk a little bit more about informants later, that when the informant, it was a girl, said that there had been a good job done on the Army, on the Army ROTC building, Howard didn't say anything except, do you really think so? And he smiled. Now, I know Howard pretty well, and he might have just said that because he would have been happy that the action had occurred. There might be people in this audience who were involved in that burning because the only person that we definitely know was involved, you just heard. 
And many of you do know who that individual is. I'm not going to say who it is, but there's a number of you who do know. Um, they never, ever found the other 11 arsonists. That code of silence has stuck for, um, you know, the better part of 40, 50 years. And, and this story that was relayed by the confidential informant where Howard kind of smiled, I assume this was written damningly. It was written in that um, FBI filter <laughs> where there's, um, it's, it's always framed in just the way, the, the way that, the R, that the FBI wanted to document it. So the case that they were going to build in the same way that J. Edgar Hoover had said, build a case against Michael Siskind, there was a consistent effort to build the case through these confidential informants. And we know their names by their code names. Cynthia, David, Edna, Otto. We located about 15 or 20 confidential informants. And they were, you know, in any given organization, in any given meeting that we would might have here today, there might have been four or five of them in 1969 in the room. And they would have been good friends of yours. You can see how a person could become paranoid. <laughs> uh, May 4th, 1970. This is a day that doesn't need much introduction at all. This happens in Ohio, 1224 p.m. Four students are killed. Word spread. How did word spread? Well, you know, before Twitter, um, <laughs> there were telephones. <laughs> it's hard to imagine hard this era. Hard to imagine. <laughs> no cell phones, but, you know, there were landlines. You know, word spread across the nation like wildfire. Four million students on 900 campuses protested that night. It was immediately galvanizing for students across the nation. We're listening to my St. Louis International Film Festival conversation with documentary filmmaker Nina gilden Seavey. Her new podcast, My Fugitive, is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back from the break, we'll learn about what happened at Washington University on the evening of May 4th, 1970, and the early morning hours that followed. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. This hour, we're listening to my St. Louis International Film Festival conversation with documentary filmmaker Nina gilden Seavey about her new podcast, My Fugitive. Before the break, we recalled the events of May 4th, 1970, when four Kent State University students were killed and nine others wounded by the Ohio National Guard. The moment galvanized anti-war protesters at colleges across the country. That night, students in the anti-war movement at Washington University here in St. Louis decided to target their campus's ROTC building. Earlier in February, about a dozen protesters burned the Army ROTC building to the ground. On this night in May, they targeted the Air Force ROTC building. Let's listen once again to a selection from the podcast My Fugitive. Here's one of the students Nina spoke with, Dev Kennedy. They wanted to go straight to the ROTC building and burn it down, which they did. Outside the Air Force building, the crowd began chanting and throwing rocks. One person later reported that he heard a little bang mixed in with the chants and the cheers. And then some of the protesters broke down the building's doors and smashed the windows. That's when I was frightened for other people. I thought, oh boy, you cannot burn down this building. And when the fire trucks came, which they did, and throw rocks at the fire trucks, I said, this is going to be, for people who are doing it, it's going to be serious trouble. At 12.45, the police issued a Code 1000, the riot call. Around 1 a.m., the firefighters had the fire under control. The crowd broke up and backed away from the smoking building. All that was left standing was an empty shell. The phone in my home rang a few hours later. My father got up, got dressed, and drove off down Maryland Avenue. The next day, Howard Mechanic became his client. 
My father fought Howard's case, and they lost. Howard got five years in federal prison, an extraordinary, inexplicable sentence. There was almost no evidence that he had done anything except attend a protest on the night that the Kent State students were murdered. So Howard Mechanic disappeared. And my dad spent the rest of his life haunted by him. When my dad was dying of cancer, he and I talked about Howard a lot. In fact, the last real conversation we ever had was about Howard. We sat on the porch of his house in South St. Louis. It was almost winter, but the late afternoon sun was warm. And my father seemed to want to talk while he still had the energy. He endured decades of harassment from the government after Howard went on the run. The FBI believed he was somehow complicit in Howard's flight. And he was angry that Howard had fled and left him holding the bag. But there was something else, too. Something about the whole thing just didn't add up. He had the feeling that something had happened that Howard and he couldn't explain. Later, I would discover just how right he was. I spent nearly a decade trying to answer the question of whatever became of Howard Mechanic, and every door I opened revealed more doors and more rooms. This show is about that journey, from one room to the next, and the ghosts that occupied all of them. It's a story fueled by paranoia, about communists in our midst, and about anti-war activists trying to bring down the United States, and about the threat of black power. All of it forged in the peculiar crucible of my hometown, St. Louis. After a couple of hours talking that day on my father's front porch, the sun went down. He was chilly and worn out, and I realized at some point in our conversation I did something that was unusual for us. I put my arm around him, and we walked inside that way, holding on to one another. We never spoke about Howard again. In the last weeks of his life, my father's incredibly sharp mind began to fail. He never did learn what happened to Howard Mechanic, or why. But I did. So Nina, your father was haunted by Howard Mechanic, and you ended up picking up this quest to find out what had happened to him, where he was, and, and why all of this happened. So where did you begin? Initially, I went in search of Howard. By that time, the FBI and then the federal marshals had been looking for Howard for the better part of, I don't know, maybe 20 years. It took me two days to get to Howard. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I connected with Howard. And during that process, the federal marshals became aware of the fact of my search. And I was contacted by one of the federal marshals, Bill Presson, actually. And he proceeded to explain to me in great detail the aiding and abetting laws in the United States and exactly what might happen to me should it be discovered that I was, in fact, in contact with Howard. Because they assumed that I was, you know, first of all, they thought my father knew where Howard was. And, and they, they harassed him. They, you know, would audit, the IRS audit him every single year. The um, FBI would come and, you know, interview neighbors and friends. And it was just a constant sort of stream of harassment. Until one day, I was very surprised, I found a confidential informant report where my father was in at a cocktail party. And he turned around as close as Sarah and I are to one another. And he said, do you know where Howard is? I don't, haven't seen him. And uh, it, it turns out that that individual was one of the confidential informants. And they said, oh, Gilda doesn't know where he is. You know, but even that they didn't, they, they were unrelenting and they never let up on the pressure. Nina didn't want to go to prison for aiding and abetting Howard Mechanic. She dropped her search. And instead, she started filing Freedom of Information Act requests. She submitted 358 requests, and they kept getting denied. Then, in 2015, she worked with an attorney to file a lawsuit, and they won two separate judgments in 2017. The government started releasing files, files on certain characters in this story, files on Washington University students, files on Nina's own father. And she discovered that the story wasn't about Howard. The documents led Nina down a trail that led her to a bar in South St. Louis. Here's Nina describing the place in her podcast, My Fugitive. I want to tell you a story about a bar. 
It's called the Grapevine Tavern in South St. Louis, and it opened in January 1968, about the same time that Howard Mechanic and his friends at WashU were protesting the escalation of the war in Vietnam. The Grapevine Tavern is in the same neighborhood as my dad's house, about a 10-minute drive from the WashU campus. But the politics inside the Grapevine couldn't have been more different. The bar was an unofficial headquarters for supporters of Alabama Governor George Wallace, the unrepentant racist who was running for president that year. You may have heard Wallace's most famous quote. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. The Grapevine Tavern was a place in a town that had a lot of people that would have been the type of crowd, not all of them, but plenty of them, would have been not only white supremacists, or they would have been hardcore racist. That's Gerald Posner. He's a journalist and the author of 13 books. In 1998, Posner published Killing the Dream, James Earl Ray and the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. He spends part of the book describing the grapevine and the politics of its regulars. They would have been people that if you had walked in and grabbed 10 of them and asked them what they thought of Martin Luther King, they would have thought he was a communist or a traitor or worse, that he was a disservice to the country, that he was not loyal. The bar was named after the prison grapevine, the secret networks convicts use to communicate while they're on the inside. And aptly enough, it was the kind of place where local criminals would go to pick up a job. It was owned by John and Carol Ray, James Earl Ray's brother and sister. John and Carol, the whole Ray family, they knew a thing or two about life behind bars. So this bar uh, certainly sounds like a den of villainy. The, the listener wonders, though, how does this connect in any way to what was going on just a few miles down the road at Wash U and Howard Mechanic? Which is the, the question I asked myself. It's like, you know, when you go, when you're doing a, an investigation, there's lots and lots of threads that are totally irrelevant. But this one seemed different. And I couldn't really figure it out until I came across a confidential informant report from a cellmate of James Earl Ray. And James Earl Ray, as you find out in the podcast, I'm going to remind you now, was a fugitive from the Missouri State Penitentiary at the time that he assassinated King. So the Ray family is from St. Louis, from sort of Alton, Illinois, and then they lived in St. Louis. John and Carol owned the Grapevine Tavern down by my dad's old house. And in the Grapevine, there was a lot of planning that occurred, not just for the Wallace campaign, but also for the John Birch Society, for the White Citizens Council. And during that time, and this was sort of repeated by one of James Earl Ray's, um, his cellmates, that an offer had been made through the grapevine for the assassination of King. Now, the FBI knew this. It was documented in the FBI files. It came from a credible source. So uh, let me just explain one trajectory. One was that James Earl Ray escapes from the Missouri State Penitentiary in March of 1967. He assassinates King in April of 1968, right? A lot of people don't remember that James Earl Ray was a fugitive from justice for two months after he assassinated King. During the time that the FBI was doing the investigation of King, this report, this informant report, comes forward and they said that there had been a bounty to kill King made at the Grapevine Tavern and that James Earl Ray knew about it. The day before James Earl Ray escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary, he received a visit from his brother John Ray and John is documented to have assisted in his escape. So all of a sudden, there's another fugitive and a confidential informant report that is in the FBI files that is not being followed up. But it's not the only one. Coming up, Nina Gildan-Seavey digs into the extent to which the FBI was meddling in the lives of St. Louis activists and harassing one of its main targets, Martin Luther King Jr., all in the name of disrupting the new left. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. This hour, we're airing highlights of my St. Louis International Film Festival conversation with Nina gildon Seavey as she shares what she uncovered about the FBI's efforts in the late 60s and early 70s to disrupt both the civil rights and anti-war movements. In 1956, the FBI began COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program, to disrupt the activities of the Communist Party in the United States. It later expanded in vast ways. Here's Nina talking about how COINTELPRO was utilized during the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement of the late 60s. On May 10, 1968, J. Edgar Hoover sends a memo to all of the offices across the United States. And it says, we are expanding COINTELPRO to the new left. Now, there, COINTELPRO had existed for a long time. It had existed against the Communist Party, against the Socialist Workers Party, against the Black Panthers, against the Ku Klux Klan. So there had already been extraordinary infiltration by COINTELPRO into the inner workings of a number of organizations. The difference with with COINTELPRO New Left was who is a card-carrying member of the New Left? We all were card-carrying members of the New Left. There was no card-carrying, there was no no official registry. So on May 10th, 1968, J. Edgar Hoover says, we are now going to launch an attack on American youth. He says, I want to know from every office in the United States who the major targets are. About a month later, the special agent in charge of the FBI in St. Louis writes a memo to J. Edgar Hoover and says, in St. Louis, there's going to be four central targets. One is an organization called Action. Two of them were um, organizations against the war. And the last one was SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society. So I just want to point out to you a confluence of timing. April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King is assassinated. James Earl Ray is still on the run on May 10th, 1968, when Hoover launches the broadest, most intensive attack against America's youth. It's all happening at the same time. And let's listen to My Fugitive to find out a little bit of the mayhem that happened next. Well, my name is Percy Green II. I should be described as a former chairperson of Action, which was a protest organization, 100% volunteer, interracial, and nonviolent. Percy Green, as he says, was the head of Action. Action Council to Improve Opportunities for Negroes. We would focus on uh, jobs, especially jobs for black males. We were proactive. We was not a reactive oriented organization. Percy started action in the mid-1960s. You can imagine, Percy Green and his organization were pretty well known around St. Louis and by the FBI, which considered action to be a black extremist group in the mold of the Black Panthers. Percy Green's wife used to get calls in the middle of the night. My wife at the time, um, she was uh, overwhelmed uh, in a number of times with uh, phone calls, with threatening uh, messages. Uh, or, and many times that uh, she'd get a call that I had been killed. There were wiretaps and bugs. And of course, the poison pen letter, meant to sow trouble. Like the one the FBI sent to Dr. King and his wife Coretta suggesting that King kill himself, along with an audio tape from his hotel rooms. But those letters weren't just for leaders like King. They were for people you've never heard of, too. People like Jane Sauer. She was known as Jane Simon at the time. Jane was a member of an organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, WILF. And she was also a member of Percy Green's group, Action. We 
always felt that we were somehow infiltrated. Jane's husband wasn't in action or involved in any movement work. I was getting deeper into activities like action, and he was becoming more opposed to it. And one day she came home and he had this letter. I remember it was in the kitchen, and he wouldn't let me touch the letter because he was afraid I'd rip it up. You could get a divorce for infidelity. So he, this was his verification that I was a bad woman. So he wasn't going to let me touch the letter, but he held it up and showed it to me. I have this letter. I got it from the FBI through my Freedom of Information requests. It's written on a slant with lousy grammar and spelling, and it's astonishingly racist. There's no good way to read this letter, because it's me, a white woman, reading words written by a white man, doing his racist impression of a black woman. It starts out, Look, man, I guess your old lady doesn't get enough at home, or she wouldn't be shucking and jiving with our black men in action, you dig? Like, all she wants to integrate is the bedroom. And it was signed, A Soul Sister. And when I saw that letter, at first I thought he wrote it. He, meaning her husband. I mean, I just, that's all I could think of. It's like, because I did not think any of the women that I knew in action would have written that letter. They were my friends. And somehow, I guess I convinced him that this letter might not be true. I don't know where it came from. And at one point, he said, maybe the FBI wrote it. And I said to him, you are paranoid. You have gone off the deep end. The FBI doesn't care one bit about me or action. I mean, I just didn't really think that anything that I did was of that great importance that the FBI would take notice. But she was wrong about that. I have a second document, one Jane's husband didn't see. It's from the special agent in charge of the FBI office in St. Louis, a guy named J. Wallace LaProd, to J. Edgar Hoover. In his memo to Hoover, LaProd wrote, St. Louis, meaning the St. Louis Bureau, proposes to anonymously send a copy of the enclosed letter, the letter Jane's husband got. Someone, whose name is redacted, told the FBI that Jane's husband had been asking around, trying to find out if Jane was having an affair. LaProd goes on, The resulting marital tempest could well result in action losing their corresponding secretary, and the WILP, that's the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, losing a valuable leader, thus striking a major blow against both organizations. In other words, if the FBI broke up her marriage— She'd be a single mom, three kids, no time to do movement work. The letter was kind of the final straw in the marriage. And then the dispute over the letter and my activities and whether I would agree to no longer participate. And I got divorced fairly shortly after because he, be- he became very enraged over this letter. Jean did wind up dropping out of the Women's League. She kept on with action, though. It was compelling, she said. In early June 1970, J. Wallace LaProd reported back to Hoover about the letter. In the section labeled Tangible Results, he wrote, Jane has taken an apartment during this separation, which might become a permanent arrangement. This matrimonial stress and strain should cause her to function much less effectively in action. And then there's this other thing. Whoever the FBI's informant was, that person knew Jane's work in action quite well. From the informant report, we know it was a woman. She knew the intimate details of Jane's marriage and knew Jane's vulnerabilities. She was likely a friend of Jane's. So it's shocking to think the FBI wasn't just spying on people. It was actively meddling and messing with their lives. Did these agents in these memos have any compunction about what they were doing? No. I mean, because it was had been very clear from that May 10th, 1968, kind of invective from J. Edgar Hoover, your jobs are on the line. And in every, every 90 days... There was a tangible results section 
And a tangible result could be something like um, an activist gets divorced after, you know, you've messed with her marriage. You, that, that counts as you get your gold star. You get your gold star. You may have destroyed somebody's marriage. You may have um, been able to make an arrest for somebody smoking pot out on the quad and turn that kid into a confidential informant. I mean, there were hundreds of confidential informants in St. Louis alone. There were thousands of them across the nation. So these were people that were very, very well embedded in, you know, in, in every part of campus life here at Washington University. These are the, this is the same FBI that did not ask any questions down at the Grapevine Tavern. Nina wasn't the first person to connect these dots. Robert Blakey was chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. That's when Congress was investigating the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Nina tracked Blakey down at his home in Arizona in 2016. He told her, I've been waiting 40 years for someone to ask me these questions. Robert Blakey told her about a memo uncovered by the committee that spring of 1978, 10 years after King was murdered. They just misfiled it, is their explanation. But when they found it, they gave it to us. And it, that's better than throwing it away. The memo showed strong evidence of a St. Louis-based bounty to kill Martin Luther King Jr. And that bounty was issued by an attorney with strong connections to the world of assassin James Earl Ray. Yet the FBI didn't probe further. Robert Blakey told Nina that the FBI would not have looked into whether Ray had accomplices unless it was forced to do so, and it wasn't. At the Brown Auditorium during our film festival conversation, Nina and I couldn't fully tie together the thread she explores in her podcast. So many people who'd been part of the WashU anti-war movement had stories to share, questions to ask. They'd lived this history. But after the film festival, I followed up with Nina. I wanted to fully understand how Howard Mechanic, her father's client, tied into the failure of investigators to look into the King assassination. She told me that it all came back to the FBI's own illegal activity, the wiretaps, harassment, and surveillance of American citizens undertaken without Congress's approval. Those illegal acts were only revealed years later after Hoover's death. If there was an investigation into the King assassination, they would have come back and found COINTELPRO because there had been a massive campaign against Martin Luther King himself. He was a target of COINTELPRO's efforts. He was efforts. one of the prime targets. And one of the things we go into in the series is what happened to him in the COINTELPRO against him. And it was vicious and racist and intended to destroy him. But if they had done an investigation into what happened at the Grapevine Tavern, what happened during COINTELPRO, what happened in all of sort of what was called COINTELPRO Black Hate, they would have come up and found COINTELPRO against Martin Luther King. And so as soon as James Earl Ray was caught, which wasn't but a month later, you have to remember he was a fugitive mm -hmm. um, until June 1968, when they caught him, he, under duress, confessed. Three days later, he recanted and spend the rest of his life saying that he was a dupe and had been forced to confess to the murder. The FBI never, ever looked into the conspiracy that originated at the Grapevine Tavern. And so when you connect these efforts to go after Dr. King, with what was happening in St. Louis, efforts to disrupt the new left here. There's a figure that plays heavily in both of those, J. Wallace LaProd. Um, it wasn't just that he was in charge of the St. Louis Bureau when it arrested Howard Mechanic. He was also involved in the harassment of King. J. Wallace LaProd was the assistant special agent in charge of the Milwaukee office in what was the very, very beginning of the COINTELPRO against King. King went to Milwaukee and stayed in a hotel. J. Edgar Hoover assigned J. Wallace LaProd to the very first sort of um, 
nationwide attack on Martin Luther King by bugging his hotel room in Milwaukee. You can only imagine how highly prized J. Wallace LaProd was because he got that very special assignment. He then pops up in St. Louis. He then becomes, gets the, the, the prime plum of all of the, uh, of, of, of all of the assignments in the field, which is that he becomes the special agent in charge of the New York Bureau of the FBI. And then later on, he is the unindicted co-conspirator, along with Mark Felt and L. Patrick Gray, Mark Felt, who is, as we know, deep throat, in the attacks on the Weather Underground families. They had been bugging the families of the Weather Underground and the Carter Administration Department of Justice brought charges against J. Wallace LaProd as an unindicted co-conspirator, L. Patrick Gray, who had been the successor to J. Edgar Hoover, and Mark Felt. And these people were brought up on charges because they had violated the civil rights of Americans. So you find J. Wallace LaProd in all of the requisite places whenever J. Whenever J. Edgar Hoover wanted his man on the ground. So your podcast makes clear the human cost of the disruption and the harassment that the FBI was engaged in. And you make it clear it was far more than just Howard Mechanic, whose, whose life was derailed by this. Well, it wasn't just Howard. It was only Howard who fled. So if if Howard hadn't fled, I think what a tragedy would have occurred because I never would have gone into the bowels of the FBI to discover what I discovered. And look, it was the, you know, our our group of co-defendants that were brought up on these charges that literally nobody could believe in America. But what they were, they were tied to COINTELPRO in St. Louis, and they these individuals became examples for the rest of the nation. And they bore down on these students in a way that n- no one else in America, not in Madison, Wisconsin, not in you know, New York City, not in Ann Arbor, Michigan, places where there were huge demonstrations, hundreds of people were arrested, but only in St. Louis, were these federal charges levied. And it was only Howard Mechanic who fled and then haunted my father that made me want to know what happened. Because my father had a sense at the very end of his life that something had happened that no one could explain. Now, he didn't live long enough to find out what that was, but I did. What do you think your father would say about what you learned as you dug into these FBI files and uh, got to this truth that you talk about in your podcast? You know, I think he would have been, first he would have been incredulous because my father, if nothing else, was a believer in the system. He didn't believe in, you know, radical violence of any kind. He believed in peaceful protest. He believed in working through the courts. He believed that Howard should have served his sentence. He believed in the in the justice system. So the idea that that he that he would have been at the epicenter of this this violation, this violence against the civil rights of these individuals and against his civil rights. It wasn't just these students who were being targeted. You know, as I mentioned in the in the podcast, it was also the, you know, I mean, they were they were bugging him. His phones in his office were tapped. Think of the the attorney client privilege that was abrogated by Cointel Pro New Left. But I think In some ways, I'm kind of glad he didn't live to see this because he would have been, it makes me wonder whether he would have felt that his life and his work had been in vain 
because he could never have imagined the assault that he would have been under by these agencies. And look, it wasn't just the FBI. It was the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, the Department of the Army. They had concentrated themselves in St. Louis. Civil rights attorney Louis Gilden died on Christmas Day of the year 2000. President Bill Clinton commuted Howard Mechanic's sentence just one month later. St. Louis psychologist Larry Kogan had previously admitted that he threw the cherry bomb that led to Howard Mechanic's conviction. You can learn more about Howard Mechanic's almost 30 years as a fugitive and the FBI's campaign to harass and disrupt the new left in the podcast My Fugitive. It's a production of Pineapple Street Studios, available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering by Aaron Dore and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.